Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Levine. Welcome to the Gould Standard, a regular arts magazine brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. We bring you conversations with incredible people from across the world of the arts. If music, books, theater, dance, visual art, and film are your mood-altering substances of choice, well, my friends, this is the place for you. Be sure to press like, share, and subscribe, and add your comments, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. And to get more great content, pay a visit to our website www.glengould.ca And while you're poking around there, if you happen to stumble across the donate button, your generous support would be greatly appreciated. We are a registered Canadian charity. Now, I've been looking forward to speaking with today's guest, the inimitable Chili Gonzalez. Chili Gonzalez is a musical chameleon in the best sense of the word. His work as a solo artist and in the worlds of electronica, as an MC, rap, pop, and in collaboration with Feist, Peaches, Jarvis Cocker, Drake, and Daft Punk, and his compositions in his own distinctive pop-infused classical style, make him a hard guy to pin down or classify. But I think that uh, we'll find that that's just the way he wants it. Along the way, he has hosted a series of short programs on German TV explaining the inner structure of pop hits, co-starred in an independent feature film, played the longest solo piano concert in recorded history, and created his own revolutionary music academy, the Gunservatory. And if that weren't enough, he's now the author of a new book on defying the concept of guilty musical pleasures by unabashedly professing his love for the Irish singer Enya. What uh, peaks could be left for him to scale? A Christmas album, perhaps? Well, for those of us at the Glenn Gould Foundation, we're thrilled and honored because... Gonzo has been very kind to us. In 2016, he played a a private benefit concert for us with the Montreal singer Alejandra Ribera. And uh, most recently, he took part in the jury for the Glenn Gould Prize just three weeks ago. One thing's for sure, Chile is very serious about his art without taking himself too seriously. In performance, he can be very, very funny. 
He's a contrarian, yet at the same time, deeply respectful of his musical roots. He has tremendous technique as a composer, but he never allows artifice to overshadow authenticity. In brief, he's one of the truly original musical voices of today, and we couldn't be happier to have him. Welcome, Gonzo. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you, Brian. Great to see you, too. Uh, I'm going to start a little differently than I usually do, but it's on the subject of style and temporality. So I'm going to actually read a quote by Glenn Gould and ask you to to give your thoughts on it. He's talking about his favorite composer, Richard Strauss. And he says, The great thing about the music of Richard Strauss is that it presents and substantiates an argument which transcends all the dogmatisms of art, all questions of style and taste and idiom, all the frivolous and effete preoccupations of the chronologist. It presents to us the example of the man who makes richer his own time by not being of it, who speaks for all generations by being of none. It is the ultimate argument for individuality, an argument that a musician can make his own synthesis of time without being confined by the conformities that time imposes. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but what do you, th- what do you think about that? Yeah, that resonates a lot with me. I, I've always advised young musicians to be less aware of what other musicians are doing. The more you watch what your competition, your peers, whatever word you choose to use to describe that sort of musical scene that you are a part of or that you are even just maybe physically part of because you live in a certain city, the more you will not be able to listen to yourself. It just creates a distraction. It creates a kind of replacement of action with reaction. And I feel that about political events. I feel that about any kind of hive mind, no matter how well-intentioned it is, will inevitably corrupt the process of listening to yourself. I believe it's all in there already from a pre-conscious time. I essentially think, and I talk about this in my book quite a bit, but I hope I'm also an example of it, that my obsessions were there from before I knew what taste was. And everything that I encounter since that time of consciousness, let's call it, you know, preteen or adolescence, where taste becomes a matter of self-definition, it's already corrupted. It doesn't mean it's wrong or bad, but it goes less deep. What truly is deep is inside of us already. So my goal as a creative person is to shut out all outside influence and dig deeper into myself, throw that fishing rod into myself as close as possible to the bottom of that giant milky void that is my unknowable, unconscious personality and get surprised by what comes up. As my friend Jarvis Cocker says, and I quote this in the book, the artist learns about him or herself by making things. That first moment that you have a creative spark, it should either shock or impress or provoke or it should do something to you that you didn't expect. Once it's there, once that creature that you've hooked onto your fishing rod has been spat out and is flailing right there in front of you, 
it's, you know, breathing its last breaths, you can say, okay, what do we have here? And then a whole other process starts, one that is much more intellectual, one that is corrupted only in the best sense of the word. You start to think without compromising the purity of what I've just come out with, how can I now finish it? How can I now get it to a place where it's ready to meet the world? And there you have to think about the outside world. You have to think about your audience, I believe. Maybe other artists, you can think about them too, but I think that's probably, in my case, something I'd rather keep to the side. And I try to think about my audience and imagine how they would then encounter this piece. So it's always a twofold process. And the deeper unconscious part of the process has to come first, followed by the brain. Right. I've always thought of communication as a, a kind of a pitcher-catcher process. And if you pitch and no one's there to catch, then as a pitcher, you basically failed. So the audience, of course, has to be on the receiving end and has to be you know, able to get something out of it. But at the same time, I, I really relate to what you said about trying to resist too many influences and particularly too many pressures. I think it was the poet Wallace Stevens said it was about fashion. And he basically said, you know, fashion is the opposite of individuality. But then again, a community of individuals is no community. But by the same token, being too closely aligned with your community can compromise your individuality. Well, conformity only exists if you're aware of what other people are conforming to. It should essentially be a non-issue. Now, that doesn't mean that you're an island unto yourself, obviously. So I don't think it's a choice. Many people sort of structure it as a choice. You are either an artist and please yourself, or you're an entertainer, which means you're possibly pandering or calculating or cynically just giving the people what they want. I'm more of that kind of tech entrepreneur's mindset. Give the people something they don't know they want yet. And the way you do that is by following something that's deep within you. So you don't, it's a matter of when you are in which mode. I believe I'm an artist when I'm alone, but I'm an entertainer when I'm in front of people or even thinking about those other people. And there's a time to be an artist. There's a time to be an entertainer. There's a time to be respectful of the musicians and other artists that came before you. We stand on their shoulders, obviously. But there's also a time to embrace a more punk rock attitude and say none of that matters. It's all about the now. I think it's about knowing which moment to be respectful, which moment to be disrespectful, which moment to be a self-pleasing artist and which moment to be a maker of community. And that makes a lot of sense. It's it's really having the versatility to recognize and move between the different modes and also to balance them against each other. Yes, it, it's... I, I suppose balance is, again, sort of a thing that we... It should never really be 50-50. It's more just be 100% in the mode that you're supposed to be in. And, you know, I kind of consume music that way as well, I realized. When I had to think about taste as I was writing the book about Enya, I realized I don't have a favorite album. I have a favorite album for going for a walk. I have a favorite album to take a bath to. 
I have a favorite album to put on when I'm entertaining a lady friend. I have a favorite album I put on when I'm sad and depressed because the lady friend left my house earlier than I hoped she would. Each situation leads to the next, and then there's the perfect music that you need for that. And so I'm always looking at it as, a, as being functional. And I love my music to be functional. And, you know, there is a trend now, and it is happening mostly on places like Spotify. It's the, the dreaded peaceful piano playlist, the PPP, which used to mean pianissimo, but now just means background music for studying and things like this. And while I respect that music should be useful and functional, I, I think the best music, like the best artists, can have a multi-mode purpose, which means my music should be interesting enough that the person who decides to play my sheet music can channel my musicality. That's probably the deepest relationship someone can have to my music is to read it off the page and play it. Or next best thing is probably close headphone listen all the way to hipster dinner party background music. Those are all equally interesting to me, but I would be sad if my music didn't work on one of those levels. So peaceful piano playlist music I don't judge it. I don't knock the hustle of the people who are on there. And occasionally my music does slide into a peaceful piano playlist once in a while. But I would be sad if that was the only place it could live. So again, my music tastes in listening and my music tastes in what I create have to be imaginable as existing in different modes. Your thesis is really about the kind of peer pressure that people are subjected to about their taste in music. And what about that do you see as potentially a problem and, and the solutions that you explore in the book? Well, I speak from experience, having gone through so many false versions of myself. I was a pretty insecure kid, a pretty insecure adolescent, despite being, you know, talented at music and being really encouraged by my teachers to explore that talent. There were very few of those teachers who were able to sort of slap me in the face and say, hey, you have to figure out who you really are musically. Otherwise, none of this technique and wonderful, voracious musical appetite will be worth anything. It took me a long time to be able to own, or as the French say, assume what my true taste was. And I'm talking again about a pre-conscious taste, a time before you realize what liking something is. It's a very visceral, you know, it's goosebumps or not when you're a child, actually. And, you know, we're like that with humor. We laugh or we don't. It's fairly involuntary. To a certain extent, dancing is like that. Music either makes you move or it doesn't. It's hard to fake wanting to dance. Certainly is terrible to fake a laugh. And yet we fake appreciating music very, very often because of certain social pressures or sometimes a feeling that we just want to be different from certain people, maybe an older sibling or, or to find music that will purposefully offend our parents or things like this. So we start to get an idea of what music should sound like for us to accomplish a kind of social goal. That's that's a lot of heavy intellectual lifting, and it's quite a pretzel you have to twist yourself into sometimes. I, for example, 
after going through a period of being a musical show-off interested in what I now consider to be masturbatory jazz fusion, I see now that would not please the gods of music at all, because it's virtuosity not in service of creating community, but virtuosity in service of the ego. I quickly learned that that was kind of verboten in the world of cool indie rock. And so I decided to sort of overcompensate and go the whole opposite direction. And I pretended to be interested in indie rock when I wasn't because the people I want to hang out with would like it. And I suppressed my inner jazz fusion fan. Both of those, in a way, were false paths. The true path is the one that, of course, was preconscious. It's what I heard or didn't hear when I was growing up, what I liked and didn't like, what I was missing, what I'm chasing on a deeper psychoanalytical level. And uh, that's how my book begins. It begins talking about that my mother was not a lullaby singer. And there was a kind of reassuring musical maternal energy that I would have liked to have had. And I'm chasing that my whole life. That's what leads me to write about and, of course, to listen to Enya or Lana Del Rey or Francoise Hardy. It attracts me to work with singers like Leslie Feist. And that's a huge part of my actual musical taste. There's also the piano lessons I had with my grandfather, who introduced me to classical music and the part of me that is fascinated with the tradition of Western musical greatness, capital G, and then there is my obsession with rap music, which comes from having a father who was essentially a get-rich-or-die-trying type figure, someone who was very obsessed with success and who was enacting a kind of capitalist revenge fantasy from growing up poor in Algiers. So I can now say, yeah, that sounds about right. I listen to soft, soothing music. I listen to classical music. And I listen to rap. And I know why all three of those styles of music have now been the last ones standing. Interesting. That, that's uh, And you've touched on where Enya fits into the picture, but from all of the vocalists who... Well, she does kind of occupy her own space. But, you know, she comes out of the Celtic world originally with Clannad, and, you know, there are a certain number of what I call pure-voiced high soprano singers who might be considered... So why her? Why her? Because to write a book about Enya made me laugh when I thought of it, partly. When I tested it on people, it just felt right. I could have written about Lana Del Rey, who is someone who I have logged many more hours actually listening to. But somehow to write about Lana Del Rey being such a fan, maybe it would have been wouldn't have had quite the same detachment. And, you know, Enya embodies not just a musical ideal for me, but combined with her image as a new age music for MILFs, let's call it. Combined with that, you know, the warm bath that is her music, there is the fact that her career is actually rather uncompromising. So it leads me to a whole other contradiction, which is we expect people who are uncompromising to sound a certain way. We expect the music to be possibly 
difficult to listen to because we project onto them a kind of they don't give in to commercialism. They don't calculate. They are natural musicians following their their inner voice and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, our our first discussion was about how that's a necessary part of being an artist, to be uncompromising in that first stage. What's interesting about Enya is that she had so much success so early, she was in a great position to essentially tell the record company douchebags to shove it. She doesn't tour. She hardly does interviews. She does an album every eight or nine years full of instrumentals where she doesn't even sing. You know, she's not shaking her moneymaker every chance she gets. And so I found this contradiction to be what really put me over the top to write about her was her musical reputation is in contradiction to the actual praxis of her career. And that's what I wanted to explore in the book because I've struggled so much with how much I'm willing to compromise, my own desperation, so to speak, to be heard, to be known, to be loved. And Enya is an inspiration to me in that she really keeps a lot of dignity while existing in a fundamentally dark capitalist musical system that we are all part of. Right. And it really is interesting because if to the average music lover who isn't part of Enya's core demographic, if you made a list and said, you know, who is not authentic on this list? A lot of people would probably choose her because they have this image of the arrangements and are syrupy and this, that, and the other thing. But in fact, it's entirely possible within that space to be completely authentic. And then you could say that there's a certain parallel to Gould who said, I'm done with concerts. I'm going to record and I'm going to do experimental radio documentaries. And, and frankly, if people buy the records, I'll be happy because I can keep on doing it. But if not, I've sort of made my decision. I feel like it must have been more complicated than that because he is such a communicator. And what you just said feels like it might just be oversimplifying a little bit, because if that were the case, what he put out would have been obscure, but it wasn't. Even when he was playing what, for its time, was highly unpopular or unplayed music, whether it was bringing Schoenberg to a much wider audience, or of course, single-handedly, you know, recording Bach for the piano and and um, making that happen. So, I think if you still, I think he still had his eye on the audience, just not the concert audience. Right, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, he made that decision obviously facing a lot of pressure from a lot of well-meaning people and from some commercially motivated people. But he authentically believed that the results that were essential to him to be satisfied in his music making were better served through technology than standing on a stage. And that just was was 100% true. I think there was a mixture that he also, frankly, had a lot of anxiety about stage performance. But I really do sense from the people I know who knew him well, as well as what he wrote, 
that it was a primarily aesthetic and philosophical judgment about how technology could liberate his inner artist. Well, he reached more people by doing that than by staying in a traditional staid concert career. I mean, it it makes me think of the moment I released my first solo piano album in 2004. Up till then, I'd released four or five albums of pure electro underground, either rap or pop pop music. And I had record company people telling me that my first breakthrough big hit was the, you know, one album away and I was close. And at some point I followed my intuition and did a, an album where I stripped all of the personality uh, away from a very, you know, loud, prominent, superficial exterior and pulled back so that instead of screaming to get attention, I would sort of be pulling people into to, to lean in and hear what I was doing. And the people around me, of course, who didn't really have any vision, it makes sense for them to think that's not going to be something we're that interested in. Uh, we don't really want to hear you play the piano. We just want to hear you get better at doing the thing that you've been doing for the last three years. As I'm sure many people were advising Gould, no, just... Tweak around the edges around your concert life. Make it more bearable, however. But this is it. This is how this is how pianists are. This is how we make or break pianists. And and I can't say that I I knew it would work that way, but I had some inkling. And then the album came out, and it did blow things wide open for me. It was huge. And it was really huge. It was really huge. And not only that, it was pre peaceful piano playlist. If I can alliterate further and add another P. It was pre all of that. And now there's a lot of people who come from the world of whether it's pop music or heavy metal or electronics who have now put themselves into doing acoustic instrumental music. And I can look and say, ah, in a certain sense, I was ahead of things. And whether they're good or not, in a way, they are all my children. There you go. For example, Sting, when he recorded a lute album. I don't know his. I don't know his lute album. But. He he became obsessed for a little uh, period of time with Renaissance lute music, and he actually put out a lute album about ten years ago, which actually made all of his diehard fans very curious. And then they waited for him to sort of snap out of it, and he did. But it, it is actually interesting about the the sort of the leaning in. A story that my wife tells is of going to Massey Hall, which is about a 2,800-seat theater, quite a few years ago, and hearing the English guitarist and lute player, Julian Bream, who died, I think, about three months ago. And the lute is one of the quietest instruments in the world. It's a really, really quiet instrument. And and 2,800 people, even in a hall with good acoustics, that's a challenge. Just the program rustling can drown it out. But she said... Everyone just became suddenly very quiet, and he made the audience, he basically drew them into him, to this very inner experience. And I think that actually, in a world of very loud music, a lot of the time, there is sometimes a tendency to confuse decibel level with emotional intensity, which is, I think, not the case at all. I would agree with that. It has almost become its own cliche now that quiet instrumental music, uh, 
is a balm for us as life becomes more hectic, fast moving, louder. And maybe in 2020, that became even more so the case as more people were at home and struggled with a kind of collective massive change that we all went through starting in the spring. And now you really do see a lot of musicians coming out with music that they are pitching as a balm, as a, a kind of respite from, from everything. Why not? But every true cliche is tomorrow's cynical marketing. So we have to be careful on that slippery slope. I will say, and this comes down to Enya, this also has to do with Christmas carols and touches on the experience of hearing Julian Bream play a lute. Music's original function was to bring people together. It was to tell stories, folk music. That's where music really comes from. Everything to do with the composer being present, to paraphrase Marina Abramovich, is relatively recent. Even up to and including Beethoven, we're not quite in the age of the cult of personality of the artist that begins, let's say, in Western music with Paganini and Liszt and, and a lot of social movements happening in the 19th century that made that all possible. But the craftsmanship of being a musician and the social function, you know, folk songs don't tend to have the word I in them. Christmas carols don't have the word I in them. And guess what? Enya's music doesn't have the word I in it. Sail away, sail away, sail away. It's not me that's sailing away. It's not Enya that's sailing away. It's all of us. And I have become fascinated with this music where the ego of the composer is absent. I'm also truly obsessed with a series of recordings. You'll probably know what I'm talking about of Thomas de Hartmann, who transcribed music by his guru, a fellow named Gurdjieff from Azerbaijan, who played a bunch of folk and sacred melodies on his harmonium. Thomas de Hartmann was a trained European disillusioned concert pianist who fell into the orbit of this guru, transcribed these pieces uh, for piano, played them. Keith Jarrett has recorded the entirety of them as well, I believe. What I love about these pieces is that the first eight bars, you could be in the opening salvo of a second movement of Schubert. But the moment where Schubert's personality slash ego would slowly start to develop the material and point itself out, hey, everybody, look over here, I'm Schubert. That just doesn't happen in the music of de Hartmann Gurdjieff. And it doesn't happen in folk music. Folk music has to be not that surprising in that it has to be accessible for us all to sing. As I was analyzing these Christmas carols while playing them, trying to say, what is it about these pieces that links them? And I realized there just aren't the same kinds of flourishes in those pieces that you would expect when a person is trying to express their inner reality. And of course, it's too late for me to become a folk musician. I am a creature of ego-driven music, whether I like it or not. All I can do is try to balance it, temper it, see if I can contrast that side of music making with something that would be much more in line with what the gods of music truly intended, which is to bring us all together. And I think classical musicians 
especially the ones who aren't composers, the, the true interpreters, in some way they might be closer to that than the composer performers, who, as much as I love being a composer performer and I bemoan the fact that there aren't that many around compared to the golden age, there is something, an envy, a kind of covetous fascination that I have with musicians who are truly making music in service to something else. It's why I love gospel music. It's why I, in a way, also appreciate what DJs do, even though I will point out that they're not truly musicians. But by selecting music, they are doing what the gods of music intended, which is creating community through music. Then, you know, as far as folk music is concerned, even if your destiny isn't to be a folk musician, you can still love it and experience it and, uh, and recommend it to others and be part of that yes, community I, that way. Of course. You know, look, ego is a reality in our modern Western society. We are a culture of the individual. We've lost touch with many ways of creating and maintaining community. That's possibly why, as I get older, I become fascinated with something that wasn't there for me. Music was a place for me to find my place in my family. It was a place to protect, but also project me and made me feel seen, made me feel valid. It gave me something I wasn't getting in my family life. And so I can never escape that association personally. I can only be aware of it as I continue to make music. Right. And it also connected you to a lot of people who become an extended musical family, people like Feist and Peaches. community also by putting other musicians as an example writing a book about Enya in my own way is to take that energy and put it outward creating the conservatory in which I invite young musicians to share some of these insights and to see if I can actually design a very concrete set of exercises for them to experience what would normally just be homilies or cliches that they would hear but to actually create an experience for them where they understand why failure is a good teacher, where they understand that to trust their instincts will actually have a better result. They hear that all the time, but how can they actually experience it for themselves? So I kind of went through so many, I went down so many wrong paths as a musician because my ego was in the driver's seat for so long. And I got a little bit of enlightenment along the way, and I still struggle with it. But one thing I can do is to retro-engineer those experiences for others to go through in a more benevolent way and hopefully more concentrated way that it won't take them the 15 or 20 years it took me to arrive at some of these truths. Right. And, and frankly, you know, if you 
have gone a certain distance down a particular path, it takes a, a certain amount of courage to say, I don't want to throw away all the time, the energy, the the composition that I've invested and just say that was a mistake. It's, it's kind of like if you've ever watched The Big Bang Theory when Sheldon Cooper finally comes to the conclusion that string theory isn't real. It's not easy to let go of that investment, but obviously you've been able to do that. Yes. And, you know, I have this lyric in one of my oldest rap songs, a song called Salieri Serenade, in which I talk about that. Some part of us is always wanting to fit in, follow the rules like Salieri, but we all yearn, of course, to be able to break out, break the rules and be ourselves with impunity like Mozart. There's no dispute. I'm going to persecute all musical prostitutes. I know a ton of them. Plus, I used to be one of them. So now I make fun of them. Uh, so, that's great. Because while you're giving a lot of validation to people's perfect right to love the music they love, even if it's what their peer group says they shouldn't, you also are allowing people the freedom to say, I don't like something that people say I should whatever is trendy, or if there's a particular artist who everyone regards as a genius. I've got a few of them, and, and believe me, the scorn and derision, and it might be, you know, I'm not going to mention who they are because they might be absolute favorites of yours, but nevertheless... Well, um, why not? Why should I be offended? You can even say Chili Gonzalez, and no, no, I'll no, let no, you have it. Actually, not. I'll mention one, and I'm not afraid of your scorn and derision. It's all those people out there. I've never been a fan of Frank Sinatra, but I am a huge fan of Mel Torme because I find something closer to emotional purity carried by a superior technique, but technique that really serves the emotional expression and also, for me, at least a lot more musical complexity, which I find fascinating. He apparently was also incredibly well endowed. I didn't know that. So I Vol bet Torme has a bigger larynx than Frank Sinatra, uh, is what I'm trying yeah, to say. I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. Also progression. I mean, the he went from singing Hooray for Hollywood and really simple stuff and really flowered as a very, very complex and nuanced and multi-layered jazz musician and a real jazz musician um, who could stand beside anyone from Ella Fitzgerald on to Sarah Vaughan. But the power of saying that you reject the groupthink that Sinatra is an untouchable icon, I find to be much more interesting as a, a way of creating energy in your own taste. So we sort of shy away from the idea of saying we don't like something. We think that it's bad to be hateful. We think that it's impolite to impugn someone else's opinion. So, of course, in polite society, you might want to just say when the conversation comes up, you wouldn't really mention you don't like Sinatra. You would just maybe orient and say, well, Mel Torme is kind of my guy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right? And that's what you might do in polite society. I would prefer a society where you could, without offending anyone, just be able to say, 
Sinatra's overrated. We used to have a joke with a really good friend of mine. Said, you know, if you ever meet Quincy Jones, just go up to him and tell him he's overrated. Because no one's ever done it. <laughs> just because he's never heard it. And probably he should hear it at least once in his life, you know. And I once did meet Quincy Jones after he watched me from behind me without me being aware. At Montreux, he was eating a sandwich side stage while listening to me. And I had to meet him and I thought, am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? And of course I couldn't do it. I don't believe it. And, and, but plus there is something to plus that. you don't want to hurt people and it might hurt him. I doubt it. He's doing okay. Well, he's doing okay. But, you know, I don't know about him particularly. As he but- said, Gonzo, I'm 83 years old and I got 22 girlfriends. I mean, he's doing okay. <laughs> So, but, but there's power in rejecting something, and I can't trust an artist who pretends to like everything, right? Who pretends to find value in everything, and every artistic choice can be read as a choice for something or against something. For example, Enya not having drums in her music to me is a very, very strong choice. It leads to her music being very energetic by other means. Just as the fact that I don't use electronics on stage, as many of my modern pianist compatriots do, is a very strong choice in favor of creating modern and electronic music energy using just the piano. Okay, well, so we're free to dislike whatever we like. I made a little list, and uh, I thought I'd run through it with you. And if you want a thumbs up or thumbs down, things that some people might find absolutely intolerable and i just want to see if i get surprised and find that you find any of them tolerable so here goes um steel pan you know like uh, caribbean steel drums well with instrument may i object to this exercise okay And, and the reason is this kind of goes against what i'm what i'm trying to get people to to sometimes people ask me to recommend music and I almost feel like, like, would you recommend bananas to someone? You know, would you say, oh, you should really try bananas if you don't know them? I mean, it sort of feels like people have made up their mind about bananas. And for anyone who's never tasted a banana, they're going to make up their mind within about a half a second. And they might like bananas and I like carrot cake and carrot soup, but don't like carrots. I, I just don't feel that it's ever worth trying to, you know, convince anyone or to in any way have a kind of intellectual discussion about taste because it would be akin to me trying to give you loyalty arguments to to make you change your mind about bananas. Right. So steel drums, I don't really have an opinion on them. I'm sure they exist on some pieces I like. I don't think there's any instrument I would write off Mm -hmm. just like that. I think it's a little bit easier when it comes to certain artists because artists embody a a whole world an instrument is only as good as or bad as who's playing it so i have to object to instruments being on this list personally i know there are people who have those preconceptions i mentioned in the book someone who can't stand to listen to the modern jazz quartet because vibraphone equals cruise ship jazz for them. Interesting. And I, 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 not one of those people. There is not a single instrument that just by its very nature offends me. I take your point. And, and it really is 
more, I think the point is, if you like it, if it produces a real reaction that gives you pleasure or an emotional response, it's fine. And if it doesn't, it's fine. And we should Right. Be, I mean, if you're yeah. in the lobby of a hotel and in the Caribbean and you're trying to talk to someone and the steel drums are like super loud, you're going to be annoyed. But if you hear Othello Molinou play steel drums on a Jaco Pastoria song, you hear them differently. Exactly. And context accounts for a lot. But you raise a really interesting point, which is about the peer associations, almost the identity politics of different musical genres. People have a vision not only of what the music is like to listen to, but also the people who like that particular genre of music. You know, I mean, jazz, smoky sellers with a slightly off off the right side of the track audience and thick plumes of reefer smoke and so on and so forth. And if you, that you find interesting and appealing, you might feel more inclined because of those peer pressures to, to find jazz of interest, regardless of the musical content itself. Uh, but I did want to talk about one problem because, you know, I unabashedly have spent my life a lot around classical music. And for me, there's a huge identity problem because essentially the peer association for classical music in my mind remains this Margaret Dumont in a night at the opera and who wants to belong to that club and to a certain extent I think it's in fact a very major extent it's a self-inflicted wound you know I mean in Beethoven's time all of the habits and uh, proprieties around concert going didn't exist. If he got a good response when he was conducting one of his symphonies, he'd stop at the end of the movement and play it a second time. He'd encore it before the end of the piece. People applauded between movements freely. All that stuff that you're told, you know, you'll be garish. And that's just invented. And, and the idea that it's music for smart people or this kind of people or whatever, it's just like... Just listen to the music, and if it does something, that's great. And there are short pieces as well as really long pieces if you you know don't like listening to lengthy pieces of music. It's just, in some ways, while people who are involved in this particular genre have a reputation for being snobbish, in fact, they are, at this point, so beaten down that they really, really are open to inviting artists from just about any other genre to perform with them because, you know, they're looking for a way of surviving. Yeah, I would agree with that. The reputation of the genre of classical music needs rehabilitation. But no one really knows how to do that other than on the artist side to to find a way to use the best of what other genres have to offer. The reason, I think, and when would you trace it to exactly this change? Somewhere between 1900 and 1920, perhaps? Two periods, really. Middle of the 19th century, with the rise of a middle class in Europe who wanted to ape aristocrats and basically imposed on themselves a lot of rules, which the real aristocrats were laughing about, for example, sexual morality, while aristocrats were jumping in and out of each other's beds and, and frequenting brothels all over Europe. But the middle class, 
the upperly mobile middle class had this concocted notion of what how to be like them. And I think that created a self-imposed restraint. And then in the 20th century in North America with poor immigrants coming to the New World who found access to things that they could never have afforded before, and they wanted to be like the upper middle class. So the same kind of emulation, I think, existed in both cases and, and acted as a huge filter. So in each case, we're talking about that corrupted taste that I was referring to. We're exactly. talking about a social decision to like something. What we have to get to is to get people to trust their innate taste. I have a small disagreement, I think, in the middle of the 19th century, from all the reading I've done about European classical music of the time in the Romantic era, that initial brush with capitalism and bourgeoisie and the kind of aping you're talking about, I think created a feeling that the music was more alive than ever, because it created also a healthy competition. You know, it it was the beginning stages of an encounter with capitalism. We all know that the further the encounter goes with capitalism, uh, the worse it gets. But the first brush with capitalism, I think, had a really positive effect. I think the idea of Franz Liszt finally saying, hey, wait a second, I can be alone on stage for two whole hours, what no one thought was possible before, and I get all the money, and women are, you know taking a cigar butt off the ground and making a necklace out of it. You know, even Wagner, who I have a lot of problems with, but in his own way, he was someone who was pushed to outdo all the other composers. Yes. And had very strong opinions about what art should be. And part of that was a healthy competition that arose from that sort of emerging market. It, what I'm trying to say is that when you focus the audience on um, feeling close to the artist, when your priority is their pleasure, I think mostly good things happen. And so I look at that second period you're talking about. I look at it a little bit like, what happened to the composers who still want to give pleasure when giving pleasure became unfashionable somewhere around World War One? I'm no expert, but I know it was sometime around there. And we then turned into a kind of, there was a schism and the academic world of music found pleasure to be unfashionable. And all of those pleasure-giving musicians became fascinated by jazz, by Hollywood, by recordings, by Tin Pan Alley. And you get Kurt Weill and you get later Bernard Herrmann, you yep. get Korngold, you get Prokofiev, I think, who was very audience conscious as well. Those are my favorite composers of that time because they never lost touch with the fact that they want to please their audience's ears as the main directive. And any composer who decided that was unfashionable led us to the point you're talking about today. I, I agree with that. And, and the other thing about composers in the 19th century is that a lot of them were very closely associated with political radicalism, which made them very popular in that sense. For example, I know you're not a huge opera fan, but Verdi was as popular as any 
pop composer today in Italy in his period. And part of it was he was seen as a an activist for Italian independence. So, yeah, that's how you get the gondoliers humming your songs. Yes, exactly. And choruses of the slaves and, and so on. They're subversive liberation messages wrapped in music. So Yeah, and uh, there's a great book. I read a lot about Wagner, and the reason I have... Wagner hanging over me is my father is a gigantic Wagnerite. There's a great book called Verdi slash Wagner or Wagner slash Verdi. Can't remember. And it's interesting, the common points, the kind of radicalism. and But at the same time, you see a real difference in especially how they finished their careers. I guess we're in the same, we're in the same situation today, as you say. Music for Donald Trump fans. And and there's music for Bernie Sanders fans. So I guess those associations are all there in what we're talking about with my Enya book, that taste is often a social decision. And who does YMCA belong to now? When you see Trump doing his weird double jerk-off dance, you think, wow, this has come a long way from perhaps what YMCA was originally intended to express, which was something subversive and and celebrating a culture that hadn't been in the mainstream, specifically gay village New York culture. Right. And then you see it appropriated by a right-wing politician dancing to it, and you wonder... Do you think Trump was outing himself? <laughs> I think he wants the word young man... To be repeated as he dances. Yeah, I think that's as simple I think as you're that. You're probably he's, right. You're probably you, right. You say the word "young man" and you look uh, virile and uh, and active and energetic. That's probably the right message for what he was trying to convey. But what I mean is that social meaning of the music can change if someone is able to weaponize it. So who knows what Verdi might be used for? Look at what Hitler did to Wagner's music. Yeah, exactly. Wagner was anti-Semitic, but Nazis didn't exist yet when Wagner was alive. So it's and not he was, fair. He was a political Sorry. radical on the side of democracy. So, you know, he, I think, wouldn't... He might have been on board on the anti-Semitism, not on the authoritarianism. There you go. So what I mean is it's possible that Hitler took... I mean, what I'm trying to say is that Parsifal was the YMCA of the 19th century. Let's talk about your Christmas album, shall we? I've heard a little excerpt from it, which has Silent Night in the minor sounding very Brahmsian to me, if I'm not totally off track. Was that on your mind with, with that version? Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I really love Brahms. I often, I often am attracted to. I seem to have this liking for composers who are considered conservative throwbacks in their time, and also composers who are thought of as poor orchestrators. <laughs> I don't know why that is. I, I love Gabriel Fauré. I love Rachmaninoff. I love Brahms. They are all essentially throwback conservative figures who were not thought of as having invented anything truly new, but having perfected things that have Brahms, in the case, perfected Beethoven. Fauré possibly having perfected or at least Frenchicized, if that's a word, Brahms himself. And I tend to be attracted to those figures. And yeah, in playing Silent Night in a minor key, it had the feeling of that one of those one of those intermezzi to me. The way that the way that the melody lends itself to this plagal minor repeating cadence. Very wistful. So what are we what what else are we going to hear when everyone runs out and gets themselves a copy, an actual copy? Come on, have something you can give to your friends and family. Folks, that's what you want. Something that you I'm okay up. with them streaming. It's, you know, it, it's it is what it is. I have no problem with streaming. Yeah, this Christmas album is definitely an attempt to create something that I couldn't find when I was looking to celebrate the Christmas season over the last few years. I, as I mentioned, generally only feel socially comfortable when I'm at the piano. Mm -hmm. When I feel part of something, it's because I'm leading a sing-along. And I've done that almost every year. When Christmas comes around, I find myself in some situation leading a sing-along. I grew up secular Jewish, but of course, Christmas carols aren't truly Christian anyway anymore. They are just part of the dream of Christmas that is sold to us. And I thought I would revisit them in a way that would bring some realism, bring some more mixed emotions to them. It's not only putting them into a minor key. It is being playful with them. And playful can mean making them minor, but it can also mean changing the time signature. It can mean playing them in a much more jazzy way. It can mean playing one on top of the other because there are some commonalities. They exist in our collective unconscious, mm -hmm. these carols. And so it felt like they were especially ripe for a kind of Chili Gonzalez playful treatment because the better known the song, the more liberties I can take. When I'm composing my own music, I have to create platonic world of forms or text versions of my own pieces because they're being heard for the first time. I go on tour and that's where I start to play with them. It's a longer process. Here, I can skip all that. There is no urtext. Right. There is only a platonic world of forms version of Silent Night living in all of our minds. If I ask you right now, what's Silent Night? You don't think of a particular recording. You think of the melody and... That's about it. The lyrics, they exist in your mind in an abstracted sense. And every version that is ever played of Silent Night is only being compared to that Ur version that exists in our minds. And that is a really fun opportunity for a musician such as myself. Now, when the song was not very well known, 
such as a medieval Christmas carol called Maria Durschein Dornwald ging, yes. which is a middle-aged uh, German Christmas carol, very early. Beautiful piece, already in minor, no need to transform. I played it very faithfully. I played In the Bleak Midwinter by Gustav Holst very faithfully because people outside of England don't know the beauty of that carol. I have Jarvis Cocker from Pulp incanting the words in spoken word on top, and it's just so haunting. And last but not least, I brought some pop songs into the fold. Last Christmas by Wham! and All I Want for Christmas by Mariah Carey, the only true legitimate new Christmas pop standards of the last couple of decades, I would argue. And I played those as well, stripped of their kitschy coutrements. I tried to then create the platonic Ur version by playing it extremely faithfully, melody right hand, chords on the left, so that there could be no chance of replacing one ironic perception with another. Rather, I wanted to turn it into a I wanted to turn Last Christmas into a song without the word I in it and make it all of ours. I, it sounds like, I, I don't like to use this word because it's a value judgment, and, but it sounds like a much more pure approach than about 99% of the crap load of Christmas records that seem to come out every single year most of which don't exist for a purpose except to get sold. It's high risk, high reward to, for someone like me to do a Christmas album. In one sense, it makes sense because I have the entertainer mindset and only entertainers do Christmas albums. If you're a, an artist who takes oneself seriously, you won't do a Christmas album. But I'm not that either. What I will say is there is a dream sold to us at Christmas that if we consume if we spend money, we will be happy. We will find a connection with our family through essentially a capitalist approach to Christmas. It's a kind of mandated happy time. And we are told how to achieve that happiness. Now, some people buy it, hook, line, and sinker. Many of my friends, they go the opposite direction. They resist. They couldn't believe I was doing a Christmas album. Why are you doing it? I hate Christmas music. I was told multiple times. Mm -hmm. When they've heard the album, they've said, finally, a Christmas album that I can appreciate. So I'm gambling on people having a listen in just a few bars, understanding there's an intimacy and a fragility, but also a playfulness that they will immediately recognize as something from my music. Right. It sounds like a Chili Gonzalez album. but You happen to have Jarvis Cocker there. You also happen to have Feist, who we wrote the one album's original song together, a song called Bannister Bow, very much in a Bing Crosby jazz standard mm -hmm. um, Christmas tradition. And I really hope I can soundtrack this Christmas in a different way. I did the album in 2019, not knowing what kind of Christmas is coming around the corner in 2020, but perhaps my intuition and timing... Might just be right. Think I'm so. a lucky son of a bitch, and uh, it could be that I got lucky again in deciding to do this mixed emotions Christmas album. The other part about Christmas is for a large part of the population that l literally never willingly listens to music before, let's say, the rock and roll era, it's probably their only encounter 
with pre-capitalist music and perhaps their disenchantment with certain aspects of today may they may find some solace in that evocation of a different past world that's right so if the carols have been co-opted in being screamed at us by the michael bublés of the world which is that sort of more cynical oh here we go with another cash in christmas album not to knock michael bublé in particular but you get and, and he doesn't scream he he croons okay Maybe not the right example. Who should I have used? Who can I use? Come on. Oh, I don't know. Alice Cooper's Christmas album. <laughs> oh, I want to hear that. <laughs> That's something I actually want to hear. No, anyhow, so we have that cynical cash-in Christmas album, and I feel like I'm just trying to reclaim it because I remember the only place that gave me the feeling of connectedness at Christmas was through the music. It was me being at the piano, leading that sing-along. I'm just trying to capture that. It's kind of resisting... That, that obvious cash-in and actually try to bring it back to something intimate and personal. And that maybe will give people a window into, oh, right, yes, these songs actually existed before all of that. Before they were co-opted, they were just folk music. They were yes. songs without the word I, not only pre-capitalist, but even pre-artistic pretense. And that makes them very, very precious and valuable because, as you say... The entire Western world knows the canon of these songs, yep. and it might be their only connection with that primitive, more functional, more socially meaningful form of music making that we almost can't get our arms around anymore. Yeah, I I agree. And Silent Night is a perfect case in point of the story about the the church whose organ broke down on Christmas Eve, and you know the composer was the cantor, and he had this tune, and he got a friend who could play a guitar, and the original version was just um, a single voice and guitar. I didn't know that story. Yeah, it's a beautiful story how it it sort of traveled around the world, you know, from that very I mean a tiny little village tiny, tiny little village. Just because this format lo allows me to go back, you know, the, the argument where you forget the, the perfect line until about two minutes afterwards, I, I do want to go back for one other thing, which is, have you heard from Enya about the book? I have not heard from Enya about the book. I would love it if I would, would even hear that she even read it, because I think it is a very, it's a very personal statement of fascination and connection to her without just being a fan letter. It has elements of a fan letter. But at the end of the book, I also do bring her back crashing down to earth after idealizing her, after seeing her as my good mother, after thinking she's pure in this terrible music industry. She's the only one who's actually doing it for the right reasons. And then I happen to see right near the end of the book, when I'm doing the end of my research, someone sends me this video of a Volvo commercial with Jean-Claude Van Damme doing the splits on the sides of two trucks that are slowly getting further and further apart and her song Only Time, you know, blaring in the commercial. And I thought, well, th this is a sign that at some point Enya is also, despite what I'm projecting and idealizing, she is someone who has sold 80 million albums and lives in a castle and... Someone signed a contract to allow that to happen. She approved that. And it brings her back down to earth. So I don't think it's just 
a love letter in that it really uses her as a as a way to talk about this whole idea of not only taste but the false choice of art and commerce that musicians are constantly pretending to make and we say entertainers are cynical and just want the money they'll do anything and pure artists exist in this untouchable iconic zone and it's never quite that simple is it right I I really only know of one well-known musician who basically not only refuses but sues anyone who tries to use his music, and that's Tom Waits. Well, maybe he's just maybe he's got a number that they haven't written on a sheet of paper yet. You know what I mean? Well, maybe everyone has their price. Come on, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Make me an offer and I'll sing. Otherwise, but it's got to be a really good offer. Let's talk about the conservatory, because I, I know that's a project that's very close to your heart. And I'm curious about how it first evolved and whether, to some extent, it wasn't a bit of a reaction against your own student experience at McGill University, trying to find a different mode for developing musical personalities that was a little freer and a little bit more interactive and based on more of a sharing model? I suppose I'm obviously not that aware of what sent that idea to the surface of my consciousness that I should that I should gather musicians and essentially retro-engineer everything that I learned so that they can experience it in a concentrated fast-forwarded sense. I will say that I felt a twin attraction to the idea of performance as the actual spiritual ancestor of all music. Music began as performance in that it was played in groups of people in caves or outdoors and in this way that we've been talking about this pre-artistic pretense world, this, you know, a world with less self-awareness mm -hmm. about what music could mean. It simply had its function. And obviously I felt we were losing sight of that. At the same time, right up until I had the idea for the conservatory, there was this huge shift in the music business the fact that recordings, which I always saw as at worst an aberration, at best an addition to musical performance, I thought it's really healthy that this bubble around recording has burst because now it's going to send us back to performance. So not only is it spiritually more healthy to be in touch with performance and music being played by people, as the gods of music intended. It's also quite pragmatic, because now that's how you have to make your living as a musician. You do it concert by concert, fan by fan, audience member by audience member. There is no replacement for that. And we discovered that when it all imploded. Now, that became complicated in 2020, <laughs> when performance itself had to um, migrate online. But it did, and... It's not ideal, but it just shows the power of that communication. I think live streams of performances were really popular, 
because we know they're happening in real time. And just knowing it's happening in real time is maybe half the battle. Mm-hmm. It'd be much better to be sitting in Kerner Hall listening to someone, but to see them on the stage at Kerner Hall from your home, it's pretty good. Yeah. Not bad. I don't hate on the live streaming at all. I'm a fan of it. I'm here for it. And, and God willing, we will get back to the option to go back into rooms and hear music. Performance is the one non-negotiable part of music. And so in the conservatory, can you describe what a year, I, mean, I realize the year, once a year, it's a week or eight days? Ten, about 10 days. 10 yeah. days. You have a group of young musicians. If I understand right, it can be from any, like any kind of musician. Yeah, they, ha- they have to be composers and performers. I, I would not feel like I have something to offer to an interpreter who isn't at least interested in improvising or composing. Right. I don't have the skills to address that particular kind of musician. So I'm looking for someone who writes and performs their own music from any age group, from any geographical or musical genre. What I'm hoping for is a musician with strong strengths and weak weaknesses And I'm looking to create the best group of musicians rather than the eight best musicians. I want the best group of eight musicians that I bring. I bring them together. The first half of the 10 days is an increasingly brutal series of exercises meant to get them to compose quickly without reflection, without self-judgment, without the comfort of, of judgment. Right. They do that in groups. They do that increasingly in smaller groups to when they're doing it individually. They have time limits that get shorter and shorter. It begins quite technically. I'll ask them in a group of four, let's say, to spend a half an hour writing a song that only has three notes in it. That's how it begins. Yeah. In the middle section of those first five days, I'm talking more maybe about concepts such as surprise and satisfaction, opposing emotional states. There's maybe two of them or three of them, and they have 15 minutes to write that. By the end of the five days, they've pulling song titles that they've all collectively thrown into a hat. They pull them out, and they have to improvise that song in real time. Oh, wow. So increasingly going from technical to more personal, because when you're reacting to a song title, of course, you are essentially finding your way to express that whatever those few words mean. And finally, when all those exercises are done, there's a brief intermediate period where they get into groups and try to develop those songs a little bit. They add something to them. Of course, when you're writing that quickly, by nature, you might only have a minute or a minute and a half of good material. Most pop songs only need that basis of a minute or a minute and a half of good material. And a great classical composer, as we all know, can write an entire symphony with three notes. So it's that principle that in the middle section of the conservatory, they are then turning those songs into more finished products. The second half is to put the best of those pieces together into a coherent concert. And we spend time talking about concert theory, audience psychology, how a story is told in a concert. And it finishes with them putting on a concert for a thousand people. It's in different cities every time. The first pilot project was in Montreal, 2016. 
And we did it in Paris and Cologne. And we're trying to organize it in a an artist colony close to Dusseldorf, close to where I live in Cologne, possibly with only entrance from the EU, where we'll hire a laboratory to do strict coronavirus testing to be able to create a bubble and hopefully be able to pull off the conservatory in 2021. We had to unfortunately cancel our September 2020 London Conservatory. Ah, oh, what a pity. Uh, which, was, which is very sad, but I'm really hoping that we find a way to pull it off safely in 2021. Well, knock on synthetic wood. The And I rather expect that there's going to be a lot of paying it forward by the young musicians who take part to their peers and their friends and, you know, providing their opportunities to share the experience and mentor, which... You know, kind of. Well, you, you know, strangely, one of my biggest inspirations for the conservatory was Pilates, the exercise uh-huh. cult. I don't know what you want to call it. The exercise movement, movement, movement. Because okay. you move when you do it. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Brian. Nice. Um, you know, Pilates began working with elite people, dancers and athletes. And he eventually scaled it so that now a diabetic fat man can get a benefit out of it. <laughs> you know, it's for everybody. And, and I believe I'm in that stage where I'm choosing my elites every year right now to see what exercises work. What eventually happened is that Pilates put it all into a book. And this book is now, there's no licensed Pilates teachers. You simply get the book. You become a convert and you spread the word and you are allowed to open up a Pilates studio. One day, I would hope that the conservatory exercises will be codified in a book in a certain order. Pilates exercises have a lot to do with what order they happen in. Mm -hmm. Same with conservatory exercises as I work on them. If I do this for another five to ten years, I may have the material to have a series of exercises that will be virtually foolproof for any interested young musician, just as a form of self-development, whether or not they want to professionalize or not, that to discover themselves through creating music would be the eventual goal. There could eventually be conservatory studios that have nothing to do with me, where they don't need to apply for a license or get approved by me or my team or after I'm gone, my estate, but it would simply be a kind of open source way of passing on a kind of approach to self-improvement through the idea of spontaneous musical composition and performance. That's fantastic. But, man, Gonzo, you're never going to get rich doing that. I'm already rich. <laughs> okay, Come good. on, man, as good, Joe Biden would good, say. Good, good, good. I hear a sound. That's my actual bell now. We have a segment called Tell Me a Story. And I warned you that we're going to invite you to tell us a little story. It could be anything. I have a good one. I have a good All one. Right. Then. Please tell us the story. Okay. This story has to do with when I played the Glenn Gould Foundation Benefit in 2016. So it was held at a really crazy house. Tell me about that house. I forget exactly what it is. It's called Integral House, and it was created by actually a wonderful man named James Stewart, who unfortunately is no longer alive. He was a violinist in the Hamilton Philharmonic, but he made his fortune writing math textbooks. His calculus textbook became 
standards all over the world, and he made millions of dollars, and he decided to build a house that would have a concert hall built into it that he could offer to organizations that needed to do fundraisers or smaller-scale performances, and they spent tens of millions of dollars, and it was like no-holds-barred for the architects. So that's the story in, in a nutshell. Exactly. It's a crazy house, and it's set on an incline, if I remember correctly. Down the Rosedale Ravine. go down from a driveway, and as you get further into the house, you realize that the lower floors are not under the ground, but still above ground. Because it's on an incline, they all lead to a kind of steep hill that yes. is essentially the backyard of this really special house. Now, I was a bit ill when I arrived in Toronto, I was doing a, a tour where I had my Massey Hall gig a couple nights later, another tour in Quebec, and this was just one of those things where I thought, okay, I need to conserve every last ounce of energy I have, no time for messing around, bim bim, in and out, let's get all of this done. So I showed up, I believe I forfeited my right to a sound check in the interest of also saving time. I arrived when the thing was in media res. I could already hear someone singing when I arrived. I did my part, gave it my all, had a great time. Former premier David Peterson was in the audience. I thought yep. it was hilarious. I played. I get back downstairs and I'm like, okay, let's get the fuck out of here. I need to sleep pronto. There's like eight more acts that are going to play at this, at this benefit, right? But I need to get out. Wait a second. The only way out from where I am in this backstage is to go up the stairs and essentially materialize right at exactly stage left in front of the entire audience that would be watching. Walking out on a colleague. Walking out on a colleague. Walking out on a colleague with my crappy ski jacket when I've just been there in a beautiful silk bathrobe, an apparition. I love to just appear and disappear. I do not like people to see me before or after gigs. I don't go and sign autographs. I don't do anything. As far as they're concerned, I don't exist once I get off stage. So I have a real problem now. So I decide with my tour manager that we are going to take one of the back doors and we're going to somehow get out through the backyard. So we find somewhere and it's kind of locked and I'm fiddling with really strange modern locks. Finally, we get it unlocked. We get out there, me and my tour manager, with like... You know, suit bags with the, with the bathrobes that are kept in and a lot of bags, a lot of, you know. And we look up and we realize we have to climb up basically a 70 degree hill yes, in the true. middle of winter in Toronto. Oh, so God, it's yes. very slippery. It's that, it's that cold, dank, mossy kind of ground. And we just have to, you know, what looks like a huge mountain is basically in front of us. So we're like, okay, let's do this. It takes us like a solid 15, 20 minutes just to make it up maybe the 40, 50 meters that we have to make it. Constantly slipping, you know, my mud on the knees of my, my show pants. I mean, it's just a total nightmare. We finally get to the top of that hill, you know, just trying to escape. And we get up there and it's like, <gasps> we finally made it, we escaped. We just basically look to our left and there's a giant bay window. And we, and we see the whole audience and whoever that woman was singing Wagner at that moment. And we look and we just think, please, just please nobody look 
look now to their left because they're going to see us too. <laughs> and we sort of tiptoe like we're in a Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, slowly tiptoeing. Where's my xylophone for the tiptoeing? We're literally like tiptoeing because we think somehow that's going to make us less visible, even though I think there was one of those like automatic alarm lights that came on us as well. It was really just like we were pulling off a heist, but the heist was just to get out of there. Oh, my God. I feel so guilty now. I, I, <laughs> I, I feel like I should send you a box of chocolates or, or maybe some fresh reefer or whatever. I mean, just something. But at least you didn't go tumbling down the Rosedale Valley ravine because I could have seen the stories about you know, like the cranes pulling out the, the mangled body of Chili Gonzalez, celebrated musical genius, the next morning frozen into a block of ice. So at least we didn't have that. Yeah, and, you know, they would have come up with some snarky headline in the sun, like, uh, Gonzalez falls down Levine's ravine. an interesting subject in your lexicon, one of the real gifts, the learning about the harmonic structure of music, which is really the secret sauce of the Western musical tradition and experience, that it's the language that lives beneath the melody that a lot of people aren't aware of consciously. They don't really see at a very frontal cortex level. You're very self-conscious about the role that harmonic structure plays in your composition. Isn't that true? Absolutely. I think you said it when you said it's the secret sauce. I always thought a melody is so, it's so frontal. It's the part that we sing to each other when we say, do you know that song? And unless you're tone deaf, melody is something that everyone has access to. As someone who just recorded Christmas music, I'm very aware of the kinds of melodies that are accessible, easy enough for everyone to sing. And melody is the one non-negotiable element of music. No matter where music goes, melody will have to be there. And if it is not there, it's because a composer decided to experiment with music that would exist without it. In other words, music without melody is only reacting 
uh, to the fact that melody is so essential. And rhythm is something very instinctive and natural. You can be untrained and have a great sense of rhythm. You can be untrained and be able to sing melodies. It's difficult to be untrained and, and use harmony properly. It may be the one element of music that requires the mind of a student. And it's, again, possible. I know some musicians who just, for sheer persistence and just time put in, will find a way to create a harmonic map of music while they play the guitar and accompany themselves as they play the piano. It's not impossible, uh, but it would at least require being a uh, a self-taught student. So I still think it would require a huge amount of time, investment, and uh, and kind of willingness to be bad at it for quite a while before you, you, you can start to master it. That said, it is less and less relevant in the world of pop music. The secret sauce of music is sound in many cases now. And it does successfully, in a sense, do a lot of the subtle and below-the-surface storytelling work that harmony would previously do. Mm -hmm. So you listen to a lot of rap or electronic-influenced songs, you might think that the same thing is happening over and over again. But when you listen very closely, the sonic palette is what creates a thousand little peaks and valleys. I do these pop music masterclasses that you mentioned uh, on YouTube for German TV, and I often have to choose songs that are really popular. That's kind of what it is. I have a nine-year-old daughter. I often get into deciding which songs to analyze by what she's interested in. She got interested in a song called Dance Monkey this year. I'm not sure if you know <laughs> Dance Monkey. I'm not sure Dance I've heard Monkey, Dance Monkey. Dance Monkey has only four chords. They are played in an uninverted sequence. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know what that means, it means that the hand is moving in a very uneconomical way, such that the root note of the chord is constantly played by the thumb. And the notes, the other two notes of the chord extend upwards from that. And every time the chord changes, the hand moves so that once again, the next chord has the thumb playing the root note. Now, a trained musician would at least have the ambition to say, well, music generally is a little bit more elegant when it doesn't have the feeling of being a parallel block that is moved around the piano. And so, you know, in the olden days, you would look for a way to play those same four chords with maybe a minimum of hand movement. And that would mean that some of the chords, the root note would appear in a different place. I, I hope I'm not getting too technical for the no, non musicians no, no, out there. But Dance Monkey flies in the face of that. And so when it begins, I suppose if you heard the first four bars as a trained musician, you might go, oh God, here we go. But the sonic variety, the little changes in what the afterbeat, which would normally just be a snare drum if you were playing a, li a live drum set, but because this is, of course, uh, electronic um, production, you have this constant evolving of the sonic palette which not only creates variation, but creates emotion. A splash of reverb creates emotion. 
compared to a clipped little finger snap sound, electronically speaking. So I think once you understand the vocabulary of electronic production, you hear storytelling by other means. And harmony is just not on the menu uh, as it was. Now, when I get asked to work with very big name artists like Daft Punk or Drake, I, I realize what they want is that, that harmonic emotion. They know that I understand their world because quite often the people who are coming from the trained world have a hard time existing in the pop world. Maybe just by lack of experience, maybe occasionally because of snobbery, maybe most commonly just because it's a different language. Yeah. But I speak both languages. And so I realize when I'm um, asked to work with them, I'm not asked to collaborate on big concepts or come up with new songs with them so much as to fulfill a very narrow slice. I've often said I'm the harmonic plumber. I'm just there to unclog their chords. And again, I like to feel useful. Yeah. So I'm very happy if that earns me a spot in the studio with someone like Drake, who I can observe and learn from and get inspired by. That's just wonderful for me. I'm not, I'm not a great producer. I am not someone who knows about hits. I follow their lead and I try to find that narrow slice within which I can be useful to them. And they always talk about chords. They'll talk about a key change. Daft Punk literally had two songs and they said, we want you to build a musical bridge between these two songs. It was a song in A minor leading to a song in B flat minor. And they wanted a piano interlude that would seamlessly get them there. And they had enough musical smarts to understand that to go from A minor to B flat minor is a bit of a shock if you yeah. get there with no preparation. I had enough musical knowledge to know what a pivot chord is and to find a chord that exists not only in A minor with some uh, with some relevance, but another, but the same chord that could f fulfill a different role in the new key. It's essentially like uh, someone who can pass between two social worlds, or someone like me who can pass between two musical worlds. You pivot, right? You find the common ground, and you approach from one side. And then you have your way into the other world. And so I did that in a very technical musical sense, but I also did it in a musical sense because I was able to take that old school harmonic knowledge and apply it to their world, which tends to do storytelling through sound. Those kinds of sequencing, structural effects, that's also a key and I think underappreciated element in the greatness of well, it's becoming an archaic art form, but the album, the record album, in sequencing the numbers on an album, you know, good Brian, producers... What, what, what's an album? What's an album? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll say this. You know, the 80s, 80s music, the Pet Shop Boys, Meatloaf, you can say. There's a yeah. lot of great, great 80s music. And because those musicians had grown up without that technology, it was their first brush with it. Uh -huh. and therefore, the songwriting didn't fundamentally change, only the outer aesthetics of it did. They could have a drum machine instead of a, a guy playing or a girl playing the drum set. And that meant that the songwriting didn't fundamentally change. A couple of generations later, you have children and young musicians who grew up with that technology. It has fused with them. The singularity has happened. Yes. And that's when sound starts to replace harmony. You listen to a Pet Shop Boys song, there are still very 
there are some very musical flourishes in those songs. You don't realize them until you play them. There's extra bars, bars of two, um, you know, proper cadences, really interesting inversions from one verse to the next. They're always trying to create that feeling of variation through some harmonic means. Right. Or, as my father would say, the Barry Manilow key change up a semitone that came at the end of every song. <laughs> but someone who grows up with the great flattening of music that we get through technology just finds other ways to tell that story. And right. it's, it's tempting, but a trap to fall into to say that somehow the sophistication is gone. Do you ever feel a little bit like you're the magician who's giving away the tricks and somehow the magic will be lost if people know that real thinking went into making these things work? I actually have a rap lyric on my second album, The Entertainist, where I say, I'm the magician who reveals the trick. So, yes, I will say goosebumps first, analysis second. Why would you analyze a song you don't like? Why would you take apart a toy you don't like to play with? Why would you bother getting into the psychosis of a person that you don't have a deep friendship or connection to? So, you know, the, the good stuff has to come first. And then... You can attempt to understand what's behind it. It doesn't mean that I'm explaining why that song is a hit. I mean, it would be a, a strong misnomer to say that just because Daft Punk Get Lucky uses parallel motion in that the melody and the bass line are constantly an interval of three notes apart. And whenever the bass goes up somewhere, the voice follows it just three notes higher. Parallel motion, it's a wonderful thing. Yes. And it doesn't mean that if you write a song tomorrow with parallel motion that you're going to have the same success as Daft Punk. For the sure. tool is not the successful use of the tool. But once I love a song, I can't help but try to look for the tools anyhow. Right, exactly. You grew up in a world where electronic instruments were everywhere, everything, but you return to the piano. The acoustical instrumental world clearly has some fascination for you. And I've actually seen you playing the pipe organ, which is really the pre-electronic synthesizer. Where did I play that? Where did you see me play that? I saw a video. There's a YouTube or two. Oh, it's a video. Okay. Yeah, on I, not live. I, I'd like to. You know, I mean, also they're the largest musical instruments in the world, so they they sort of do the Guinness bit. But I've also seen you play a clavichord on one of your masterclass videos, which absolutely blew my mind. And although you did refer to it as a 400-year-old piece of shit, it's an acoustical <laughs> instrument that you can, uh, and a keyboard that you can uh, actually play vibrato on. No, I, um, the piano especially, there's a reason it really has endured. And I think it's because it brings music to its atomic level. Now, we can't truly reduce music to what I've already referred to as the platonic world of forms version of music. But the piano gets pretty close, and especially if you play it in an incredibly unpretentious way. So when I'm specifically trying to revisit, pop songs are such a... They are a product of their sonic references. That includes not only the voice of the singer, which is probably the number one thing people react to in a song, but also the instrumentation. I happened to grow up in late 70s and 80s when synthesized music was beginning its inevitable long march to dominance. And we now hear those humble beginnings of electronic music as kitsch in many cases, 
Uh, there are certain specific reverb units that will almost make us laugh because they seem so, in a way, naive for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe that we remember that how we were naive as children hearing those. I mean, I'm speaking specifically of you know my generation, pretty much. On my album, I do Last Christmas by Wham, a very kitschy song, uh, very, very real apex of that 80s chintzy production. George Michael is very earnestly singing about love. So it has all the hallmarks of what we would make fun of and call a guilty pleasure. And it's so bad, it's good and all that stuff. But when I play it on the piano, I try to play it in a way that removes all of that from the equation. The piano can divorce a song from all of its references and get you something close to a pure x-ray. And you really can get a clear shot at hearing the musical material. Now, the piano is a codified sound in itself, which is why when I play songs like that, I tend to play with very little pedal. I try to play with very little tempo variation. I try to play with very little dynamic variation. I try not to add any appoggiaturas or unnecessary the presence of the, the pianist because I'm trying to get it to its most atomic state. And the piano is maybe the only instrument that you can really do that on consistently. So whenever I do cover songs, whenever I do those pop music masterclasses, I don't prepare arrangements. I just think of the melody and the chords and I just try to get that out in its most basic form. I try to respect the original tempo of the song. I don't editorialize. And the piano has that power, the the power to reduce. And in that sense, it is very, very modern Yeah, that this old 400-year-old piece of shit, because the piano itself is almost 400 years old now as yep. well, actually. It's true. All those 400-year-old pieces of shit have something to say because they can bring the music back that otherwise would be so codified by personality and personal choices made by the people who made it and to play it on an instrument such as the piano and maybe to a lesser extent uh, an organ or a clavichord is to remove those personal choices and to get a clear like i said i keep on coming back to this um this phrase you get a clear shot at it you get a clear shot at what it is musically it's very Gouldian. I mean, he, like you, referred to himself as a musician who happens to play the piano, and he rejected luxuriating in, you know, the beautiful sonority possibilities of, of a great instrument. He wanted it lean and, and stripped down to the essentials. But th- that actually leads me, because you play both, in the, depending on the context, uprights versus grands. Well, upright for recording, g- grands live only because I'm playing in rooms that have more than a thousand people in them. Right. If I were playing in rooms for a couple hundred people, I always ask for an upright. Up to a certain amount of people, the upright will always be preferable. It's more intimate. It is. It telegraphs in style and concept as less pretentious, but in actual musical effect, it lends itself also to being less pretentious. It is less orchestral, it is less full, and it will inherently remind the listener of hearing people play in their homes. And I want to create a feeling of being at home with me. It's also why I wear slippers and a bathrobe on stage. Right. The message is clear. 
I'm turning this Philharmonie, I'm turning this Kerner Hall, wherever I am, Maison Symphonique, I'm turning it into my living room. And so the salon experience returns. Yes. Now, there is the reality that I couldn't accomplish what I need to with an upright in Maison Symphonique. So in that case, I will break my own conceptual rule and I'll have a grand piano and I'll just do my damnedest to play it in an unpretentious way. And I actually had this experience when I heard you in Berlin that, you know, Eric Satie would have loved this because, you know, there was a kind of a clarity and a leanness, but also a, a playfulness and a whimsy in some of the pieces that I, that for me at least was somewhat evocative of his spirit. And in that context, Dolly Parton once said, you have no idea how expensive it is to look this cheap. Uh, and I'm wondering whether you could draw a parallel between the amount of work and technique and struggle that goes into achieving simplicity. Yeah, I have a feeling most people understand that these days. If someone tells me that they think I just kind of roll out of my hotel room, show up before the gig, don't really plan anything, and basically go off the cuff for two hours and rock their world. And they say that to me, so that's what they think happened. I take that as an enormous compliment because, of course, there is a lot of work that goes into it. But in another sense, they're right because the work happens before I get on stage. So in one sense, they're right that when I do get on stage, I do have to, in a way, destroy the plan that I made. I have to rip up the set list. Any military general will tell you, you plan but when you get on the ground, you know you're not going to do the plan. So I always thought you prepare in discipline, but you execute as an animal, essentially. And so that's, again, there is no false choice between being a well-prepared, studious musician who's respectful of the past and a out-of-control punk rocker who will create a feeling of unpredictability for two hours. Those two things... You don't have to choose between doing those two things. You get to do one by doing the other. I am allowed to let go and be an animal on stage because I practiced so much, because I sat there and, like Muhammad Ali, visualized the concert in real time, multiple times, before I actually get there. It's a question of knowing what mode to be in at what part of the process. We're coming full circle to the beginning of the conversation, actually. Not right. bad. So, you know, we come to the recapitulation. When I'm preparing for a concert, I am uh, a goody two-shoes. And when I get out on stage, that's when I become a bad boy. Right. And I can't be a bad boy all the time. And I can't be a goody two-shoes all the time. I need to figure out when to be a good boy in the streets and a bad boy in the sheets. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just feel my the tips of my ears blushing. Um, such a provocative guy. Do you imagine yourself in the future writing for symphony orchestra? Or if someone offered you a, a chance to score a major motion picture like your brother Chris does, or if Anya invited you to, to lay down a track with her. I mean, do any of those things sort of appear on your hope for list? I like being in a band with my friends. 
I like watching bands where you can observe a limited amount of interaction where you get to know the characters in the drama that's unfolding on the concert stage. The minute there's a symphony orchestra, there's a faceless element to that mass of people. I have done concerts with orchestras, a good dozen of them, and I never really found my way in. I kept on making the orchestra smaller and smaller as I was offered those gigs, thinking if I can just get it to that sweet spot. I think the last time was with Britain Symphonia, the Benjamin Britain Symphonia in yep. London. I think I had 18 of them. And it was right on the edge. And I thought, okay, if I had a week to rehearse with them, make them my own, get to know these musicians and write to their strengths and all that kind of thing, great. I think the Duke Ellington model is probably about as big as I could handle. should never be more than 12, 15 people if you want that feeling of a band. And that comes from the audience perspective as well as my perspective as knowing the musicians. So... Symphony orchestra is not so interesting to me. Very small chamber orchestra. Maybe now you're talking. Right. And that now. includes composing as well as performing. That's correct, yeah. Yeah. That's correct. Interesting. Yeah. I want to hear people. And strangely, I don't generally hear people when I listen. I don't listen to a lot of symphonic music. Here and there, I have my favorites, but I much prefer chamber music. Give me a, an octet or a sextet or a quartet or, or, or a trio. The, or the Kaiser Quartet. Or the Kaiser Quartet at the time. Now I'm performing with a cellist named Stella LePage, and I'm actually writing quite a bit of music for cello and clarinet and piano, of course. Uh, so I'm exploring that kind of trio world. And uh, But the reason is I met a clarinet player. You know, the Kaiser Quartet, I met them, and that inspired me to do an album of chamber music. It's about the people. Yeah. I think Duke Ellington had it right when he said, I don't write for instruments, I write for people. That's how I feel. And in a symphony orchestra, you can't know all the people, so how can you write for them? Right, exactly. Now, film scoring, not a good fit for my personality. Not only is it something my brother has done to a highly successful level, which of course means I don't want to do what he did. He's my older brother. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, um, not only that, but I don't have the personality. I like to create moments in collaborations that are very spontaneous and very short, and that's the best use of my creativity, which is a very singular, individual kind of creativity. I'm not good at sitting for three weeks producing someone's album, even though I did do that for a while and tried it out. It's not fundamentally a skill set that um, I have. And when you do film scoring, in most cases, you're asked to revisit the music. And when I create something, I get very attached to it. And if I'm told that I have to redo it, it's very difficult for me. I'm very convinced that my idea is the correct one once I've come upon it. So I take a longer time to find that first demo, but then I have a hard time revisiting it. And to be a successful film composer, at least on a higher level, you need the opposite approach. You need right. to be able to come up with a lot of options in the beginning, all of which would be equally satisfactory to you. Then let that one be chosen and then use that as your starting point. So there's some exceptions. I have done here and there a film score here and there when I really felt they understood how I work, but I generally have a lot of meetings when I'm offered a film score and I spend almost the whole meeting them telling them why they shouldn't hire me. And <laughs> if they pass that test, then right. I let them hire me. <laughs> yeah, never say never because, you know, Bernard Herrmann went and wrote an absolutely drop dead gorgeous clarinet quintet. I don't know that you've ever heard it. But it's, Imagine it's, if Bernard Herrmann had the internet. Yes. I'm not sure he would have needed to score films at all. 
Probably because not. he would have maybe found a way to find an audience for his own music. And he was just adapting and working within the best structure he had. So when musicians I know in my world occasionally say, ah, it was better before, or Gonzo, wouldn't you have loved to have been alive in right. 1850s Paris or something? I say, no. no, I owe my entire career to the internet. I would have been struggling. I mean, come on. I own two flats in two cities and I fly business class everywhere. I, that's because of the internet, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Truly a musical genius. All right, just to finish up, Glenn Gould, as you know, conducted a nocturnal existence, and he was noted for calling his friends, allegedly his friends, at three or four in the morning and having in-depth conversations. If you had been on the receiving end of one of those calls, what would you have liked to have chatted with, with Glenn about? At three in the morning, nothing. I would unplug the phone and make sure that he couldn't get through. Oh, dear. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> I like maintaining a distance from my heroes. I, I've i been disappointed here and there when I got to know people whose music I... I love the mystery. I love knowing them through their fantasies about themselves. I'm not sure. I'm, I just would. I'd rather not even speculate as to what it might be like to. I'd. I'd love to hear him play on his cottage piano that he recorded the Brahms Intermezzi album on. My favorite Gould album. There's a lot I would love to. I'd love to observe him in the studio. There are wonderful pieces of film of him in the studio, and I yes. love them. I love observing him. I love. The projection, it's a little bit like what I talk about in the Enya book of why I wouldn't want to interview her or necessarily work with her. Lana Del Rey did approach me, or at least her team did. I'm not sure if it was her, but I was approached to potentially work with her. I said no, because the thought of not being able to bring what was expected of me to her musical world would have crushed me because I admire it so much and it's brought me so much. I, never the twain shall meet. I can't project onto the idea of having a, a personal conversation with someone like Glenn Gould after having fixated on him as this North Star in so many ways. I just don't want to meet my heroes and I don't want to tarnish what I might fantasize about them by even working with them. Right. Um, now, if Lana Del Rey had asked me to play piano on a song, on a pre-existing song, I would do it in a heartbeat. Right. But what she had asked me, or what her team had asked me, was to co-write with her. So there's a difference. Yeah. So when you say, lay down a track with Enya, if the track exists and I'm there to just do my job as a pianist and be useful, great. But to merge my creativity with theirs, I can't do it. I, I totally get it. Because what we have added to, let's say, the objective artifact that they've given us, well, we've added... Here and here, you don't want to mess with that. And sometimes... Because it's beautiful. The yeah. projection is beautiful. And the thing is, what artists put out is in itself a fantasy. Artists act in that public sphere in a way that they... How they wish they could act in polite society, but they're forbidden to. So why tarnish the fantasy that they're giving you with reality? Better that I also project a fantasy onto them. Uh, fantasy should beget fantasy. That's how I see it. And that's still very intimate, is what I want to say. People sometimes say that you're playing a character on stage. Who's the real gone? I say, well, 
I'm not playing a character. I'm showing you my fantasies. I want to be an arrogant musical genius who can move through the world with impunity. I'm not that in real life. I would love it if I were, but at least I get to <laughs> enact that on stage and have people react to it in a positive way. It's a beautiful thing. Gonzo, I'm so grateful. I You've been unbelievably generous to share so much time with us. Believe me, I could have asked you about your collaborations and many, many other things. I can just save you all those questions, all that breath, and tell you Daft Punk without their robot masks are extremely ugly people. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. And everyone, get the book, get the Christmas album. It should be under the person you love's tree come Christmas morning. Take care. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, really. All right. Bye-bye. How could I ever stop? My position is missionary. I finish on top, and while you're relaxing, I take action. Guinness World Record? I beat it. Michael Jackson. Never stop. Yeah, workaholic, like I spit, sweat, and splatter. Jackson Pollock, but I'm not an artist. I just work the hardest. I beat it to a pulp, just ask Jarvis. Studio to studio, I drink juice, produce tons of new shit, like a booty hole. Show to show, full throttle, no bottle, no bathroom. Backstage, I piss in a bottle. And after the show, a lot of autographs. Yeah, music is a joke, I try not to laugh. I just try to enjoy the grind. My position is doggy, I come from behind. Underground. Underdog, underrated, under stress, and underappreciated. Man, this is war where careers get killed, and it's not a metaphor. Like, my mindset is military, like, my attitude is Hitchcock. Very scary. For instance, instinct, go the distance, prove my existence. That's why I never stop, cause it's not Chili, it's Lily, who really makes clever pop. I just do it in a different way, I'm kind of sort of indirect, call me Ricochet. Chili like Pinochet, I don't make hits, I take risks, I make flops like floppy disks. I still stay professional, not sloppy, it would be original, not a photocopy. Olivia, um, we, we now come to the end of our uh, conversation with Chili Gonzalez. Did you enjoy it? Of course I enjoyed it. I, uh, I've been a fan of Chili for some time, so this was quite a treat to hear this conversation behind the scenes. And folks, I just want to set the record straight. At no time in the course of this podcast did I really get the stink eye from Olivia. She actually is very nice and uh, very sweet, and she doesn't really have one. I would hope that's the case, Brian. It's uh, so far so good. Anyway, um, folks, I um, I hope that you enjoyed the podcast uh, and will press like, share, or subscribe. And also uh, wander off to our website, www.glengould.ca, CA for .o Canada, and uh, check out uh, the wealth of content and interesting reading and viewing and listening that you'll find there. And uh, if you're feeling so inclined, make a generous gift to the Glenn Gould Foundation. We are a Canadian charity, and we rely upon your support. Um, and uh, and now uh, I'm feeling that need for a little traveling music again. <laughs> 
Take it away, Mr. Edison. 